Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast where we discuss the great books of the Western tradition. I am Dr. Jared Henderson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And today we are discussing The Intellectual Life by A.G. Sertelange, and we are joined by our friend, Dr. Kyle Edward Williams. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing doing really well. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah it's really great to have you here for this because uh, as we were discussing before we were recording, um, I think I learned about this book from Wesley. Wesley says he learned about it from someone else. I don't know who that that this mysterious other person is, but they can then trace it back to you. Uh, so it seems that this great book has found its way into my life because of you very indirectly. Uh, and for that, well, I guess I have to start by saying thank you. Well, I'm very honored. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Kyle, why don't you um, say a little bit about yourself uh, for the listeners before we dive into the discussion? Sure. Yeah, I, I'm a historian. I'm uh, trained in, in U.S. history, um, and I'm interested in intellectual and cultural history. Uh, I'm also an editor at a journal at the University of Virginia called the Hedgehog Review, um, which examines cultural change in the modern world. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to talk to you guys about this book. Yeah, this is great. Um, you know, why don't you just say, how did you find out about um, about this book in the first place? I don't know where I found out about this book. Um, I, I, I just remember um, over, I think, hearing it maybe on a web forum um, or uh, maybe some friends of mine were discussing it and were just raving about it. And it, I realized pretty quickly after doing some doing some looking into the book that it was sort of this it's almost like a cult classic. <laughs> there are people who think yeah. extremely highly of the book, but it's not all that well known. Yeah. Um, and then when I sat down and read it, I was like blown away by just the, the searching character of it, um, mm -hmm. the, the beauty of it, but also just the nuts and bolts, everyday wisdom from the book. You know, I, I don't think I've met, I haven't met that many people who know about this book, but I haven't talked to anyone or met anyone who knew about it who didn't love it. <laughs> Uh, hmm. And so it just is this real like hidden gem. Um, uh, I've, I've, I think since reading it a couple of months ago, I um, have recommended it probably to like five or six people. Someone was about to go study. Uh, a friend of mine was about to go study at the Angelicum in Rome. And I, I was he's like, what should I read? Or is there anything I should read first? And I was like, you're going to go and study with a bunch of Thomas. You should go read <laughs> the intellectual life like this is this is the right book for you. The, the cool thing about it too, I think is that you can, it's, it's, it's a, one of those ones that's easy to revisit. And each time you revisit it, you can engage with it in an, almost a different mode. Um, I mean, there's a sense in which uh, on the one hand, when you're setting out, I mean, you can kind of read it as a roadmap for, for where you want to go. Um, but there's also a sense as you're doing the academic work, I think this is almost like a devotional book or could mm -hmm. be, could be treated as such. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the the characteristics I think of of Sertolange's writing is that he doesn't make a distinction, or at least a hard and fast uh, distinction between one's intellectual life and one's sort of spiritual and interior life. Right. Um, I mean, it's helpful to note for those uh, we've kind of started diving in already, like really quickly. But um, Sertolange is actually um, a Dominican friar. Uh, so uh, and so. He is uh, a member of this order that's uh, sort of in the lineage of Thomas Aquinas, which is often thought of as a highly intellectual order uh, when you're talking about Catholic the uh, uh, monastic orders. Um, but at the same time, they are primarily like a preaching order. And there is still this emphasis on like personal piety and devotion. Um, and and Sertelange seems to want to really be trying to integrate all of these streams of like uh, Dominican history um, into one uh, and in, in a way that I think you don't have to be Catholic. Um, like you don't have to be a Roman Catholic to like this book. Uh, and you don't even, I think you have to be particularly religious. Maybe it's easier if you're a Christian uh, to uh, really love this book, but I think almost anyone could read it and get something out of it. What would you say if someone asked us, what is the basic goal of the intellectual life, like the book, what, what is Sertelange trying to put forward? Like what kind of vision is he articulating? I think he's making the case that the intellectual life is a vocation, hmm. a proper vocation, which means that it's oriented towards certain goods. It's, um, 
it has a legitimacy in and of itself, just in the way that being a father or being a priest, um, taking on a, a profession is, um, and that it's, it's serious, um, among other things that it's serious, that mm -hmm. it's, um, th that it's nothing less than the search for truth. Mm -hmm. Um, and then for, for him, which means it's also a search for God, for, for a, a vision of the divine. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it really raises the stakes of what it means to be an intellectual mm -hmm. that I think appears and feels quite foreign for, uh, for many modern people, because it's often, I think the, the intellectual life, if it's respected at all, and often in the United States, it's not really all, all that respected. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a kind of a, a complaint that many intellectuals and social critics have made about the American culture. So it tends to be, uh, it often tends to be pretty anti-intellectual, but uh, where until the intellectual life is respected, it, it, it's often not always taken all that seriously. The ideas can be a kind of game or a means mm -hmm. for academic success. Um, and Sruti yeah, just yeah. doesn't have any patience for that. Yeah. You know, as someone who, was sort of like forged in the fires of analytic philosophy. The uh, the sort of besetting vice uh, of um, of that mode of doing philosophy is that it kind of tends to reduce the big questions to a series of like interesting puzzles. And, and and while you do feel a sense of accomplishment when you've solved some of these difficult puzzles, um, you don't have a sense of maybe. A striving for some kind of higher ideal or transcendental uh when you're when you're doing this and i think sir Delange, um definitely helped me in th in this regard um sort of the giving a, a kind of telos to the intellectual life a kind of a kind of point or end um but also i thought you know you you said that he he raises the stakes for the intellectual life and there's certainly something to that but also it seems um he makes the case that it's kind of accessible to anybody that anyone with a certain amount of time could do it, um, which I think is a really, really lovely point because um, I, you know, we've been also doing more YouTube videos and stuff. And one thing that someone has posted or a few people have pointed out or said, or I said to me is like, I'm not in the Academy. So like, why would I ever read philosophy or, you know, is it useful for me whatsoever? And I think that certain Lange wants to say the intellectual vocation is not restricted to academics. It's not restricted to um, anyone, someone who's in some kind of highly theologically trained, you know, mon uh, monastic order. Um, but it does require um, an immense amount of commitment. And certainly, there are facts about like the academic life, the structures of, of modern academia, which um, probably enable commitment to uh, um, being able to put a, uh, that time aside to do real intellectual work. At the same time, um, I would say to anyone outside of academia who's interested in this, there are enough vices that you can find in the academy actually that kind of contribute towards uh, a tendency away from this kind of pure intellectual ideal that Sir Talange is talking about, that, you know, while you might lack resources that you would find in the academy, um, reading this book might also make you a little hopeful that you can do real intellectual work even if you're not currently employed by a university. How do you think he defines the intellectual? I mean, it seems to be someone who has sort of an integrated um, pursuit of the truth that involves the whole person, which would, which then, I mean, yeah, it's open to anybody, but that, that seems to be kind of where he's coming from as far as how he would even, how he would even define the term. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I would think that he would say that, all all people desire and and search for the for the truth for knowledge for understanding that's just kind of what human beings do mm -hmm. as a thomist i think he would probably agree with that mm -hmm. um so an intellectual how is an intellectual different from any other person it seems like there's an intentionality there there's mm -hmm. a studiousness there there's a organization to it they um also, I, I right actually on on page three of this red copy. I don't know if that's the same one that you have, Kyle. Um, it might be the only one that's still in print these days. Um, yeah, uh, you know, it's uh, he he describes that um, someone who has taken on the intellectual life as their vocation, uh, they will actually 
treat intellectual work as their reward. Sort of the sort of the deepening of the mind is itself a reward. Um, and and so in a way, the intellectual life, um, while it will produce works, it will produce you know books or essays or something. Something we can talk about later. Search and Launch talks about what role those things have in uh, in the intellectual life um, itself. It, it's kind of uh, an intellectual is one who will find sort of fulfillment um, in actually the development of these intellectual virtues um, kind of for their, and, and they are good in themselves, or maybe if they're not good in themselves, maybe as a Thomist, he's actually going to say they are good because they then point to like the good um, and, and thus are uh, just by uh, good, by one degree of separation, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that, that reminds me of something that Christopher Lash said, um, I think, in the New Radicalism in America. But he, he said that the intellectual is one for whom work and play are the same activity. Mm. On this point, I think it's worth sort of um, pointing out for, for listeners that this um, this book, though it's written by Sertiange, is not entirely... Um, original to him he's really he's building on a um an older monastic tradition i mean he, he mentions this in the introduction to the book that he's really elaborating on thomas aquinas's um instructions to novices on a manner of study um how to pursue their studies when they begin the uh, the monastic life uh, which i think is really interesting but it, what, what i i think it um what's may not a uh, be obvious to to us uh, moderns uh, is just the sort of the radicalism of his suggestion that the intellectual life doesn't have to be a monastic vocation that you know the secular people can pursue it as well uh, and that you know so your your work as a secular intellectual may not bring you into theology but he would say as you said earlier that um the study of things can point to the greater good. There's um, this actually transitions well into a few topics. I definitely wanted to hit, you know, obviously I want to talk a little bit about Sertolange's approach to reading, which I think he has very many interesting things to say here. Um, I think that there's some good stuff to talk about Sertolange's view of notes. And because that's such a big topic with like productivity culture um, now, but what I wanted to hit first um, was how Sertolange um, positions himself in history and then also um, suggests that all um, intellectuals or would-be intellectuals do something similar. So, so Sertolange is a, like a student of Aquinas uh, while not like taking a, a course with him. He really has kind of like put himself at the feet of an intellectual master and says, I'm going to, I'm going to learn and follow you. Um, and he then says that Aquinas himself did this. So that Thomas Aquinas does, does this with Aristotle. Uh, Aquinas famously refers to Aristotle as just the philosopher um, and very rarely will refute Aristotle, though there are modifications to uh, things that are made. Um, and then also that Aquinas does this with like the gospels and like does this with the Bible and sort of lays himself down as like, I, I don't see it as my place to correct you here or to correct these works or, or these thinkers. And uh, in a way, what Sergio Lange is doing is putting himself at the feet of Aquinas and saying, I will develop and synthesize work that I, I find from Aquinas, but I'm not reading for the, the purpose of critique. Um, and, and this actually becomes part of the recommendation for what all intellectuals should do. Obviously, Sergio Lange actually just recommends you read Aquinas. Like he says, if you want to train yourself, you should just read the Summa. Uh, and that you should teach yourself enough Latin in six months uh, um, to, to, uh, to that you, so six that you months. he says, I think in like six months or a year, yeah, he does. Um, uh, I, I would have to check and see exactly when I read this, because you would be able to find on my credit card statement for when I bought a bunch of like how to teach yourself Latin books, because I thought <laughs> was like, was like, right. And it turns out I think he's he's maybe overstating it a little bit. But, you know, he's like, read the Summa, then you can go do interesting work in something because the Summa will teach you how to think. Uh, and you can't learn how to think in the first place if all you're doing is critique. So there's a kind of receptiveness uh, to to tradition. Uh, I, I was going to say that I think that that critique question is an important one, right? I mean, I, that strikes me as 
being standing quite contrary to the way that um, contemporary academics uh, and really successful public intellectuals tend to to do things. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we we're, we're obsessed with critique, mm-hmm. finding the power structures and everything, um, uncovering where race, class, and gender, and everything else is intersecting to 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 uh, to control. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the that's the modern mind, um, and that's the kind of obsession that we have. Um, and so, I, I think it's I think it's worth highlighting just that uh, the, he's thinking about the intellectual vocation on much different terms. Um, and you know, I, I think it's that's what makes it quite bracing and mm-hmm. kind of it, it feels very fresh in reading it. Yeah, it, and it's not as if he will. Um withhold critique in all circumstances for every thinker you know i I think uh, he is going to come to conclusions right but so much of the way that um university educations are structured now it's on this the the critique is the default mode um rather than a certain launch points out a few different ways that you can do this one of them is just interpretation uh, like interpreting uh, interpreting another work, but another is synthesis, where you find two great thinkers or two interesting observations and see how they can synthesize rather than putting them in opposition to one another. Um, and you know, even in my own graduate education, which had a lot of virtues, I, I learned to be a better thinker in this way. Um, but what was the first assignment I was given? It was like read a book start writing response papers, which are where did they go wrong, right? And then you start you start critiquing, critiquing, critiquing. And sometimes we wouldn't even have to build anything afterward. The idea was to build our power of critique before we could build our power of um, construction. And um, in this way, it's almost like a, um, it's almost like a Kantian uh, uh, style uh, of doing philosophy uh, in, in, in very general terms, begin with critique, uh, tear everything down that that doesn't sort of hold up to muster, and then we're gonna gonna build up what we can uh, instead, or maybe even Cartesian would be a better word for this. But the approach to history and tradition that Sertolange is is giving is is much much different because the intellectual life actually begins with reception, and then you construct from what you have received, um, which is interesting because of the very format of the summa itself right because that i mean there is the sense in which aquinas is critically engaging constantly i mean the whole format is the question the opposition's position and then his said contra but but even within that format where he is taking on the exact opposite position that he's going to advocate for it's still not pure critique he is building something out of that which is, is certainly instructive, I think. So it's certainly true that in form, Aquinas can have a, a critical mode where he wants to re- receive an opinion, refute it, and then b- put something else in its place. But notice the manner in which um, Aquinas actually often refutes. Um, for most of for most of us, most moderns who would read uh, Aquinas, especially if you're not already kind of bought in, um, it can feel like odd appeals to authority, right? So someone will right. make a someone will make a claim, and then uh, uh, Aquinas says, "Said contra." The philosopher says, "P," <laughs> and and thus not, right. you know, and thus P. Or uh, as we see in Ecclesiastes or something like this, and he'll just cite those as if they are um, sort of truth preserving claims in the first place, which is which is very different than the way that we would typically um, argue now. Uh, and so there's this kind of Aquinas is now in a place where he can refute certain positions um, because he sort of received something from which he can sort of build. A, uh, he has a sort of stable foundation um, for his intellectual life. And while not all of us are going to go do this with Aquinas, um, um, I will not be doing it with Aquinas. Uh, uh, um, while not all of us will do this with Aquinas, um, you can still see the 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 the, the, the real value in, in having these sort of uh, these intellectual forebears um, that we just we we learn as much as we can from, and, and thus in this way, you know, it's just like a a, a lifetime of study. Um, 
I had a I had a professor in graduate school who um, taught me uh, Hume. Actually, he was my my Hume professor, and he had written his dissertation on about a, one page of Hume's treatise of human nature. Um, and he at the time thought he had like set some sort of record for only writing about a page. And then he found a graduate student who wrote her dissertation about a sentence. Um, and he he said though that he's like I someone asked him, "Do you ever get bored reading Hume?" And he just said, how could I get bored? I always learn something. <laughs> and, and, you know, what was this? And I don't think he would actually describe himself as a human at the end of the day, like him personally. These were not the conclusions he was drawn from. But he had spent a lifetime reading this great philosopher. And um, the, the, these texts are sort of ever fresh um, if you can engage them properly. And if all you did was start by saying, where did Hume go wrong? How can I refute Hume? when you read him, um, the text would not give itself to you like that. Uh, and, and so your approach to reading in that way um, really is going to determine what you're going to get out of it. Yeah, I've often thought that the approach to reading that's centered primarily on critique is, is such a burdensome thing to put on young students. Mm -hmm. it, it's like it's on the one hand, it's burdensome because it's sort of like you're jumping into the deep off the deep end. You know, you've got to jump into something that you don't know all that much about and come up with reasons why this argument isn't working or this historian, for example, is misinterpreting the evidence. But you don't know anything. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't you don't know you don't know anything about the context of the literature. Um, and, and so maybe that's maybe that's why graduate programs tend to uh, organize their pedagogy in that kind of way. But goodness, it just feels sometimes like a missed opportunity because it it, um, it seems to me the way that I've grown, however much I have as an intellectual, is by following in other people's footsteps and really coming to to love their work, uh, even if you disagree with it, even if there are things about it that you think uh, could have been done better. Um, there's a there's a kind of there's a way in which the intellectual life turns on that kind of affection and the critical posture is it's very difficult to do that and maintain affection. Yeah. I, I think he, after uh, I'm, I'm, I'm about three and a half years out, out of my PhD um, and I was, I went into a non-academic job almost immediately. Um, and it took a little while for me to, sort of rekindle a love of reading philosophy at first I didn't want to. And I think it's in part because I was so bought into this idea of reading for the sake of critique. This is what happens when you're reading a lot of journal articles, because you're always just trying to position yourself right. in the dialectic so that then you can put out your position and show how it's novel and interesting, or at least this is how I felt. And I was definitely someone who was motivated by, um, uh, motivated by this kind of uh, intellectualism as a kind of battle between uh, between minds or something. And I, this is, I, I mean, I found it incredibly motivating and like stimulating. Um, and at the same time, though, when once I left, um, just because the job market's so dismal these days, I just felt like where was my love for this thing that had you know taken six years of my life? <laughs> um, where wh why didn't I love it anymore? And it took me a while. And I think now I just. I felt like after maybe a year or two, I was ready to read philosophy again. But, but when I found myself reading it again, it was in a much different mode and it wasn't, uh, and I, and I just found myself almost trying to join a conversation between people I admired. Um, and you know, uh, and which can sometimes be critical, but also I just found myself wanting to, uh, just to learn and understand from them. So I could read even philosophers. I, I would have probably ignored five years ago. I, uh, you know, I'm trying to eventually read a lot of Hegel again after a dismal experience, my first year of graduate school. And it's like, I can find myself wanting to do that, not because I feel a kind of intellectual pressure to prove Hegel wrong or to show why it, deep down it's all meaningless, but just to say, you know, what can I learn and what can, what can I glean from this? One, one aspect of this um, conversation about the sort of critical mode of reading versus this more receptive mode of reading, I think, you know, in the second chapter of the book, he talks a lot about the virtues of an intellectual. And, um, and he says, I think this is on page 21, you know, how will you manage to think rightly with a sick soul, a heart ravaged by vice, pulled this way and that by passion, dragged astray by violent or guilty love. And of course, he, he 
his alternative to that is is to that the intellectual should be someone a person of virtue um and he talks a little bit about vices and specifically vices that are enemy of enemies of knowledge um on page 22 um so you know there's the lack of intelligence there's sloth pride envy sensuality irritation it seems like and i don't you can correct me if i'm wrong but the 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 criticism posture that is so inculcated in the student today really seems to kind of feed the vice of pride though, doesn't it? I mean, cause you're setting yourself up as sort of the arbiter of this sort of tradition that you're receiving uh, when in reality, what, what he wants us to do, I think is, is to participate in that tradition um, in a, in a much more positive sense. Um, I think this is, I think this is totally right, Wesley. I think, um, well, okay. I don't know how much I'm able to generalize this to everyone. I can just say, though, as someone may be prone to pride, um, this style of critique um, made me rationalize my pride for a long time right? because I could say, oh, but I keep proving people wrong and I keep finding inconsistencies and contradictions um, and nothing can stand up to my critical prowess or something. And so, um, and, you know, again, I think that as with a lot of vices, um, there is often an, an early payoff to being vicious, but there is a, there is a long-term loss. Greed allows you to accumulate, um, uh, wealth, uh, very quickly. If you sort of do it right. Um, greed does not allow you to hold on to things in a way such that you actually care about them and find fulfillment or joy or pleasure in the things that you own or the things that you have been temporarily given so that you can use. Um, and, and in the same way, a sort of intellectual pride does give you a sense of fulfillment when you can prove someone wrong in a, in a conversation or in, a, in an argument or write a nice little paper, but it doesn't give that kind of longer uh, intellectual fulfillment where you feel like you've actually maybe perceived the truth. Which I think he does come down really hard in this section too, specifically on the vice of ambition when it comes to the intellectual um, probably for the same, same reasons and that it kind of stokes, it stokes exactly what you're talking about in the person rather than a humility that, that learns at the feet of someone else. I'd like to raise a question for you both because I listened to your great discussion about uh, the apology and, and the sort of intellectual life of Socrates. How would you, um, compare the kind of critical posture of Socrates um, as told in, in Plato's dialogues with this kind of critique that we're talking about here, this kind of modern one. Yeah. I, I think that there's a bit of a difference in the way that we pursue, uh, uh, pursue this. Um, one of them is we can actually see it a bit in, in the form uh, that that Socrates puts uh, puts forward or sort of engages in, um, so it's this kind of dialogical in, uh, format where it's all a series of questions, and a actually what Socrates is doing, I think, is trying to bring other people to the realization <laughs> that they know less uh, than they realize or that they, than they have previously recognized, and that in this way, it's as if. Um, I think Socrates wants to um, actually illustrate kind of uh, the universality of his own epistemic position. Like Socrates can't be prideful in this way because he's going around admitting he doesn't know anything. Um, and, and I think for a lot of us, when we're engaging in our mode of critique and this heavily critical method of reading and writing, there's kind of this implicit thing that happens at the end of the argument, right? So it's like you start with your critique, you tear everything down and then, Hey, by the way, here might be the truth. Right. And you kind of throw it in at the end. And when you've engaged in enough savage critique that people feel as if they've been sort of intellectually humbled, you can then sort of posit your own theory suddenly. And it, it's almost a kind of, um, it's it's a use of almost intellectual force, you know. It's a it's a it's a really dishonest way of arguing, but I think it's one that you see, especially in a kind of like popular writing that's a, a heavily in this this critical method. And I don't think Socrates is guilty of of that either. Uh, that said, I don't want to say that everything uh, in the Socratic method is consistent 
with what we see in Sertolange, I think there might be a, a, a subtle difference here because Socrates doesn't have that tradition he's going to draw from and sort of place himself in. Um, and, and in fact, he kind of is, um, seems to be like this free floating individual in Athens. Uh, um, uh, un, like he doesn't seem to be beholden to any of the conventional wisdom or even the intellectual traditions that, uh, you know, one could find. Um, and in this way, for the majority of us, if we tried to act like Socrates, I think we're sort of going to lead ourselves astray. Uh, yeah. I don't know, Wesley, maybe you have a completely different take. No, I think I would echo a lot of that. I do think um, in Socrates, there is a sort of authentic pursuit of the truth. And I think the opposition that Socrates is up against is that of the of the crowd who doesn't really care about the truth as much. Um, and I think when we get into academia, I mean, I, you know, we could psychologize every individual person, but in general, that, that should be the exercise, you know, that, that all, when we go to a conference, we're all here to pursue the truth. I mean, I know that that may not actually always happen at conferences, but I, I was mostly kind of, I was at conferences to, to drink, I think. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's why I go to clergy conferences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, but there is a kind of shared vocation uh, among academics that should bind them together. Um, and so, th so this sort of critical eye that's cast at everything, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's as prevalent in Socrates is, is, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I do think that he sees himself very much uh, how, how Sertelange describes it at the beginning about how the, the academic is a, is a servant of truth. I do think Socrates sees himself playing a very similar role. Um, I'm not sure that when somebody has that sort of critical posture, they're actually able to serve the truth uh, very well. Anyways, they may think they are, I guess, by tearing down false arguments. But um, I don't know. I, I, I think that's a, that's a very limited mode of service. It's a good question. How do you think they're different, Kyle? Uh, well, yeah, I, I would agree with uh, most of what y'all have said. Um, I think, you know, I think I think Socrates was sort of a, I mean, he was an exceptional figure. It's uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to pull that off well. Um, I mean, you have to have, and I think that's one of the reasons that Sir Tijan talks about the virtues and mm -hmm. you know, you have to have some some level of self mastery. Um, and I mean, it, and oh, go ahead. It's probably telling that um, Socrates' student and then the most famous student of Socrates' student didn't pursue a, a Socratic-like methodology. That's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's probably helpful for us to talk about some of the nuts and bolts um, stuff in this book, because this is actually one of the reasons that it's such an engaging read, is that first, Sartelange can can give you this really beautiful picture of the intellectual life and why you should uh, want to engage in it and then kind of sells you on it and says, Hey, anyone can do this. If they're willing to put in the work, here's how. And then he's like, all right, here are the concrete steps. I mean, you leave this book, I would say feeling like you can do it, <laughs> feeling like it's going to be a hard road ahead, but maybe it's something that you can really accomplish. Um, and I think uh, maybe we could talk about a few of those steps. Um, you know, in, in particular, I'm interested in, uh, the way that Sergio Lange talks about reading because it's so different than what a lot of people think about uh, when they talk about reading. Um, one of his rules for reading actually is that um, you're not going to read much right? or you're not going to read too much. And I, I think um, this is going to be a bit of a theme uh, in the rest of this discussion, but uh, so much of his, his, his wisdom about reading or about any intellectual work is really that quantity is really should never be the goal. Um, and I, I, I wonder what, you know, either of you think about this um, either his other remarks on reading or uh, this idea that just, um, a, a true intellectual is going to spend a lot of time reading perhaps, but is not going to consume actually that many books, uh, all things considered. 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's very interesting. I mean, I think I think it uh, it runs again. I keep harping on the, the way in which this book runs counter to sort of modern forms of intellectual life, especially as they're kind of uh, cultivated in, in in academia. But that's kind of my context and my training, so I can't help but think about it. You know, so what what we do as academics and graduate students is we just we read, 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 read. Uh, you know, philosophy is a, a little bit less uh, you know profligate in its reading lists, I, I think. But in history, you know, you're expected to read 300, 400 books before you do your comprehensive exams, and yeah. it's just massive. It, it's the way that you literally get educated in a profession. Mm -hmm. What does the profession care about here? We're going to force you to read all of this. Mm -hmm. um, but the the goal of that kind of education is 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 professionalization, mm -hmm. learning the the manner and modes of a guild. And Sertianj, I think, is is interested in in that process. But I, I, he has um, obviously different ambitions. Mm -hmm. You know, there is there is a, a time I think in, in someone's life, their intellectual life, and I think Sertianj agrees here. Um, where you're going to consume a lot of books. There's going to be this, this time in your life where you read quickly to almost see what the field is like, but that yeah. that can't be your manner of reading um, for the rest of your life. And in fact, um, I, I kind of think there's some value in the, the, the comprehensive exam method. Maybe 400 books is a little excessive, but you're just going to read a lot. In fact, your work for a year or something, or your work for the summer is to read as much as you can. But then that can't continue um, when you're actually writing your dissertation. You can't possibly, you cannot possibly read that much. Um, for one, reading as labor, it's not uh, how often people think of it, um, but for the intellectual, reading is a kind of labor. And so there's fatigue. And um, and so you, you just get tired. There are times when your eyes hurt or just you can feel mental fatigue and you know you're not going to absorb the material. Um, so there's so there is something to limiting your reading at a certain point. Yeah. And I, I think there's a there's a sort of life stage in which you have more of an appetite for that, too. Mm -hmm. um, when 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 you're and he talks about this, about the importance of not um I think he, he puts it as he puts it, not squandering the the early years of the intellectual life, because it's mm -hmm. it's then when you're most passionate and excited to understand something new. And you know, as you get older and you mature um, and these things that were once new grow more familiar, you're less excited and energized to mm -hmm. to. Yeah. Read 100 books one summer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. There's a word. there's a. Uh... You know, I, I as someone kind of in, in the the early stages of starting a family and things, I would just say I didn't realize how much free time I had when I was twenty two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and just yeah. if you really want to read, man, you can you can read a lot, especially in those early years of grad school, if you really want to, and it can be a really great uh, a really great experience. Um, but that then for for most of us, a little bit later on, while we still can make time for reading, we can still do it. Uh, we had, we just have to be wise um, to use the kind of very modern phrase. Now, you know, we have to be intentional about our reading, uh, um, yeah. but you know, or, or mindful about it. But that's just to say that we need to make appropriate decisions and portion out our efforts to where they're actually going to be useful. I think there's a kind of reading too much. That's not about mastering a field or getting a familiarity with the literature. It's, it's a kind of fluttering about it's sort of, like the um you know it's, it's the vice that thomas calls a vice of curiosity mm -hmm. you're sort of interested in this question then you're just another one and it's sort of the, the it's the kind of equivalent of bouncing from one wikipedia article to another mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so you know you know a bunch of stuff but you don't really understand it mm -hmm. this is a tough area for me to negotiate and in my margins of this book i have written personal notes about, you know, you do this too much, your reading list is not disciplined enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, perhaps something I should take to my confessor. Um, but I, as a, as a, as a priest working in the church who also has a foot in, you know, in the Academy in some ways, at least I, I do struggle with this because there is a sense when, in which when I'm in my parish, I have to be a generalist. 
And I, w- I would I'll be interested to know how, how Sertolange himself navigated the, these realities some too. You know, I mean, people come to me with all sorts of questions and um, issues that I, I have to be sort of a generalist to answer. At the same time, you know, I do have uh, an area of interest as far as academics. And so it's kind of hard uh, to know exactly where those lines are in this particular context. I think the point that you're raising is really a point of vocation, right? That there's um, that you have a particular vocation to treat your to be able to have the conversations that you need to have with your people. That um, if you're an academic philosopher or some kind of writer, um, you have a different vocation that you don't have those kind of duties. Um, And yeah, that's my sort of. But but it's interesting that Sertolange had all had. I mean, he was a friar, so it's a little different. But he was a a priest. Um, I don't don't know what his parish life was like. You know, yeah. You know, actually, I mean, like the the parish priest is like a very particular vocation. Um, um, uh, in the sense of like directly there for the care of souls, for instance. Like this is this is this is an important fact about it. But um. I mean, I wish I could say more about this, Wesley, because um, I wish I had some some great things to say. But this was a real struggle for me after I left academia that I kind of I had some book ideas. Um, I didn't really know if I wanted to develop any of those book ideas. I had some like sort of missed prospects of um, things I could have written my dissertation on that I thought about going back and trying to do. Uh, because there was suddenly a lot of freedom and I didn't have a real goal in mind. I think I just read whatever I wanted to read. So, uh, and there was a part of me that probably needed it. I was reading like biblical study stuff or theology in a way that I hadn't read in graduate school, which was nice to read. I was reading a lot more fiction, which was, uh, which was, you know, fun and, and, and can be, uh, actually intellectually virtuous, despite what, uh, Sir Talange might say, but, um, you know, having, having some sort of fixed point that you can that you can aim for i think is kind of the the crucial part right so even if you're reading a lot as a generalist because you need it for uh to be a parish priest i know you're also writing a thesis on hugh of saint victor so your your writing um like your academic reading has to be about hugh and it has to be related to Hugh. and you might think there's a very interesting topic that you could pursue some other time that you might want to get started with or something um, and it's just a, probably a bad idea. A lot of, a lot of graduate students in the PhD phase run into this or about, I'd say maybe if they're about like a year out from finishing their dissertation, they suddenly get really invested in another project. Um, and yeah, or they take, they take up woodworking or baking or something. Like yes, that. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the you hobbies know, start to abound suddenly, um, uh, on the one hand, uh, the, 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 the academy is kind of brutal in this regard because you do probably need a second project if you're going to go on the job market because you need to have a, like another thing to put in your job letter. At least that's how it was always pitched to me. Um, was like, here will be my next research phase after I've completed my dissertation and might turn that into a book. Um, and so you kind of have to have something else to follow up, uh, up with it. But for a lot of people, it was like, it was a complete 180, right? They're, they're like, you know, I, I've been writing on philosophy of logic and now suddenly I'm just like really, really interested in uh, phenomenology or something. <laughs> and like, I just really want to read the phenomenologist. Uh, and um, I think part of that's actually more of a coping mechanism with stress. They just want something that doesn't remind them uh, of their, of their difficult research project. Um, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that that's, that's the kind of, uh, that's the sort of, temptation of of a kind of acedia you know you want to you want to abandon the thing that you have a duty towards and go do something completely new Um, but you're going to end up in the same boat (laughs) Um, the grass is always greener on the other side i mean i'm currently um in like the very early stages wesley and i've talked about this a little bit i'm trying to write a book i have no prospects for when it would be published or something like this um but I have maybe five or six other ideas I could pursue or try. And one of the struggles actually is to just make sure that you remain committed. And I think Sir Talange is a really helpful person to read if you're dealing with that kind of struggle, because he's, he's going to remind you in a way in kind of unflinching terms, which I appreciate about him. He'll just state it plainly, which is just that you won't produce the work that you're capable of producing. If you engage in this kind of fluttering about, uh, if you can't be disciplined, um, you just have to do it. I'm, 
I'm, um, I hope, um, on the tail end of a, a big writing project that uh, was originally my dissertation and is now a, a book manuscript. And I was thinking about it recently because I just finished the draft of the manuscript and that I've been working on this in some form or another for um, about eight years, seven or eight years. And it's, I'm well past burnout. I'm well past I'm well past the initial sort of infatuation with the topic. Um, it takes a lot for me to actually see it freshly to even care about it sometimes, mm -hmm. yeah. but it's, a, it's, uh, you have to push through it. I mean, there's no other way. Mm -hmm. Um, the, that's the only way to, to, to finish the project. And, um, it's easily the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I think that that's the realism that you get in this book is just really helpful for times like that. It's also helpful that he gives suggestions for what to do when you're dealing with that kind of burnout or when you're dealing when you need recreation or rest, because he does emphasize that you do need recreation and rest. But he tries to advise you on certain kinds of recreation and rest that will be better for you in your larger intellectual life. Um, like you should go on, you should go outdoors. You should hike or something. You know, he's always talking about like open the windows, get enough light in, make sure you're breathing real air, um, uh, get, uh, get out of doors. Um, I think he even mentions that you can take books on your, on your, uh, vacations, but they maybe should be good books, but not like too hard or something so that you can let your mind rest. I wonder what he would think about, um, how often we, um, take breaks from writing and get on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the break. Yeah. Um I also I also really do like the his emphasis on um early production of writing and uh getting it out in front of people. Um you know, one one advantage of being at a university is that you have colleagues you can show your writing to and that you can uh do this um and I think a lot of people um, need critical feedback in order to get better at writing and to, and you know, they want, and mo most of all, a lot of us just want people to take our ideas seriously and, and to talk about them like, because we think the, these topics are interesting. So we want to discuss them. Um, and this is a, one reason people start blogs and sub stacks and things like this, but for many people, they'll never get any traction. Um, and I, but I did like that search launch thought like, one thing you need to be able to do as you engage in the intellectual life, maybe after a few years of sort of training yourself is to just start writing, start sending it to publications of some variety, start generating conversations. Um, if only because the feedback you will get will can be one, you'll learn from it, but also it's like an energizing fact uh, in the intellectual life um, to, to see that others are committed to these same causes or these same topics and find them. Uh, of interest and so you know finding ourselves in uh in dialogue with other people it, it itself is is a crucial part of being an intellectual yeah and I th uh, he he um he talks about that early on in the book um um he talks about it later in the book but also early in the book he says that um you know, that community, that dialogue doesn't have to be, take place within a large community. You know, you don't need to go write a, 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 a piece for the Washington Post or some sort yeah. of major outlet or something like that. Even just to have a circle of friends that you can share your your thoughts with. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be big. Yeah, but you know. I think it's it's very important to get out of your head, to get out of yourself. to Because yeah. um, that's the, you know, when you, when you have ever when you work on some projects and you a piece of writing and it stays with you just with you for too mm -hmm. long, there's a kind of funhouse mirror effect. It's distorted in your mind. Mm -hmm. You need that light of day that comes from other people. Yeah. Fi finding that circle, I think is really crucial. I mean, a lot of us are going to find it online these days. You know, um, this is how I primarily know the two of you uh, as meeting online, but also you're going to find even a very small circle in person or in, in your uh, everyday uh, off-screen life, I think, uh, is kind of crucial. I've got one friend in Texas that I, we're both interested in like 
uh, early Byzantine theology stuff, right? So we want to talk about this occasionally. Now, he has a classics background, um, and so he can actually read them in Greek. And then I can just come and ask him hard questions. <laughs> and, you know, it's just a really engaging way to spend, you know, an evening every month or something, get a few beers and talk about a text that no one else cares about. Um, because as you as you read those together, um, you can actually one, you're going to sometimes see some of your thoughts are going to be malformed. And uh, as you were saying, um, and you you're not going to be able to, to see it yourself. Um, sometimes you just need to put an idea out there and see how people respond so that you can see um, where it goes when put under pressure or where it goes when, you know, subjected to even light scrutiny. Um, and, and that's actually kind of the playfulness of, uh, of, of the intellectual life. Um, similar to like what you were saying with lash uh, Kyle, you know, like there, there is a kind of like, there is a kind of play to this as well. It's not all just like labor and, and strain. Um, where it's it's just fun to talk about these things uh if this is really something that you feel called to do um and so to have it you this will be the kind of thing that gives you energy this will be the kind of thing uh that makes you want to go do more more of it actually you know i always found that i wanted to write more after going to a good conference yeah me too i mean i i, I think there's there's something very energizing about um <laughs> about an intellectual community. And I think that I think that any anyone who is interested in the intellectual life is going to have multiple intellectual communities. Mm-hmm. Um, you have just like you have multiple friends or different kinds of friends that are interested in different kinds mm-hmm. of things. And some of those communities might be more formal or informal. Um, but that um, that is the kind of stuff. It's a really important element of uh, of of growing of beginning new projects of coming up with new ideas. I mean, mm-hmm. well, I, I think we're going to get into his, his description of note-taking, but mm, yeah. um, it's important that, that um, the whole of life is brought to, including your, your social life, to, um, to the intellectual life. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, um, let's actually pivot and talk a little bit about, about his note-taking stuff. Um, I say this is a confessed, like, former enthusiast for all of these like modern note-taking systems wesley and i have talked a lot about these like personal knowledge management and things like this um after reading i i had kind of become a little uh ambivalent about about those systems that are highly structured using a lot of technology and things you know coincidentally often require some kind of monthly subscription fee um uh, and then reading search Lange, i i it was like the scales fell from my eyes and I saw that there was just a better way to go, to go about taking notes. Um, and again, I think with, with, as with a lot of things in the intellectual life, it's just a practical guide. It's like, here's, here's what it is. And here's, here's my system that anyone could get started with. And um, his suggestion really is just to use slips of paper, <laughs> to use little, uh, to use slips um, and a pen and to keep the slips um basically wherever you go keep some with you keep some by your bed um i wasn't quite sure what he meant by like slips in like the modern way you know what am i gonna do like cut up a piece of paper with some scissors i suppose that's like one way to do it but i just like went after reading the intellectual life and now i just have like stacks and note cards all around my house just they're just like tucked away into a place i have some by my bed i have some uh on my desk i have some in my kitchen and the idea is just like if i have a thought or if I have something that I think is going to be interesting, I just write it down, maybe write a page, uh, write the page number if it's something that occurred to me while I was reading. And then um, I have this box on my desk. I just put them all in a box. And then every once in a while, I sort of take all the unstructured note cards out and see if I can maybe put them into little groups or something. And um, I think a lot of people would look at Sir uh advice and say that this sounds inefficient. It's, um, it's not a very reusable way or it requires a lot of manual effort it's not easily available with the search function, but I actually think this is part of the point. Um, I mean, search Lounge obviously was not thinking about the choice to use computers or not. It wasn't a relevant question uh, for him, but for us, I think there's a lot of wisdom in using a method like his, if only because um, the act of categorization, the act of sorting through your notes and things like this uh, allows you to filter out the good ideas from the bad rather than just dumping everything into a database. And also it allows you to make organic connections. It allows you to find 
harmonies in 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 your thought um that you know maybe previously you would have completely missed there's probably something about it being tactile as well um mm. that makes it a little different i mean so like one thing i i had been doing for a while is when i'm as i'm reading you know i'm sort of taking notes in apple notes you know following very closely the structure of the of the actual argument in the book that i'm reading and the problem on top of the fact that it, it bogs you down and and then you're not really you know, getting through the book, you're, you're having to go so slow is that I'm putting it somewhere else and I'm not really, there's not really a whole lot of absorption on my end, but when it's something that's tactile, when I actually write it down, when I have to hold the card, when I move the card, you know, and put it in this pile instead of that pile, I'm, there's a sense in which I'm getting more interaction, I guess, with the content than if I'm just typing it in my Apple notes and then putting it away. Mm. I think that that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I think the the key, and he he discusses this at some length, is the key, the key is to to take notes in such a way that you are actually engaging with the thing that you're taking notes about. It's not you're not producing a library to go stay in a museum that you don't ever look at. And in fact, he talks about how if you if you do take too many notes. He, he talks about someone that he knew who has a journal that was just too full of notes that they never looked at it again because it was just too laborious to digest. I remember doing this in graduate school, actually, that I would take so many notes early on. I would come into the seminar room and I would have multiple pages of, of notes from the book that we were reading. And, um, and surprising to me, the notes actually weren't all that helpful because I couldn't retrieve anything from it. It was just a bunch of quotes and information and data, data and facts and stuff. But what he's, what he's trying to get us to do is to, to a take notes, um, in a reflective way. He says it is, but you have to be careful about taking notes as you read something. He says, you know, you mm-hmm. take, take some time to more quietly mm-hmm. digest it and reflect upon it and take a note afterwards. And the other thing is that, the notes are available to you to go sift and sort and put things together. And it's that process that allows you to kind of, as you said, Jared, make connections that you might not have seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we've all been in that situation. I certainly have where I have so many notes in it. It just seems kind of like a mess. It's hard for me to figure out what's, what is the, what's the meaning of this? What can, what kind of argument can I make about this? How can I understand this better? And that's frustrating. But that's always, I think, one of the initial steps that you have to go through is that kind of frustration, confusion, mm-hmm. um, and then you move past that. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the challenges of taking too many notes early on is that you don't actually know what information is relevant in the text yet. Um, because you don't always know how it's going to fit into the larger narrative of the text that you're reading or of the synthesis or narrative that you're going to try to produce um i found probably uh the best system for me is to um very lightly annotate my books as i'm reading and i'm talking like maybe a little check mark by passages i find interesting maybe with a line or two to indicate where those are and that when i'm ready after a while i can go back and look and say why did i find this interesting right and that's when i can decide what i actually maybe want to write down into a note um, in a way, it's like an idea. Some 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 notes are just like to make sure the idea doesn't get lost completely. So you just write it down really fast. But I I I kind of think you should be a brutal editor, and that includes throwing away notes that you deem unworthy eventually. Eventually, just because you're, you're going to have too many. Um, but another is um, becoming a note for some of these things, like book notes. Not every interesting observation gets to become a note. Because an, a note's going to take up space both on my desk and in my mind. So um, some of them are just going to have to be discarded, which is a, a skill I had to learn in graduate school. Uh, I'm sure both of you have, have gotten this from professors at some point, or maybe this was just my problem. But someone had to tell me, you know, Jared, not every I- interesting idea has to be in this paper. He, he calls this the, he he basically calls this a logic of accumulation right that it becomes the end in and of itself um to collect the most notes or to have you know the most material in which the idea is not necessarily formation or even thoughtfulness but um 
but really just quantity over over everything. And so he said he actually calls that a deplorable practice on page 194. The idea of keeping so many notes around. It's like you have to not only uh, organize them every so often, but maybe just throw some out every so often, you know, couple, couple in, couple out. A disgusting habit. Yeah, a disgusting habit. This is—he's—he—he is, he, he is so anti our current moment. He is the antidote for many of uh, many of the vices of our current moment, um, and which is why I wish more people would read him. You know, we have these trends in productivity to talk about. You know, building a second brain or having like a full database of all the knowledge you've ever accumulated or something, and. Um, and I think for search launch, it might be uh, as simple as you might have all of that knowledge or know all of these facts in your personal database, but you haven't accumulated them in it with any kind of intellectual work. And you certainly haven't exercised any prudence and you haven't gained any kind of wisdom. I feel like uh, the kind of modern um, contem- contemporary sort of fascination with the idea of transhumanism and, and, and computer implants in the brain and that kind of thing is is premised well it's premised on a number of flawed ideas but but one of them is the is a kind of intellectual um, error that mm-hmm. you can gain knowledge just by downloading something into a database and supposedly mm-hmm. the brain the brain is a kind of computer um that the idea like the you know remember the scene from the, the matrix, matrix where yeah. he yeah. plugs it in his in his head and now he knows how to fly a helicopter or do kung fu um you know it, i often think about that scene because it's sort of tempting like i wish that that's how that works but that's mm-hmm. not how it works that's yeah. not how we, yeah. we know anything yeah. <laughs> all right so i just want to say uh we probably should wrap this up but um this is a fantastic book i think I, I, I kind of almost feel unsatisfied right now because I think everything we've said has been interesting, especially anything the two of you have said. Um, and yet we've maybe gotten to a tenth of this, the contents in, the, in this book. And so I, I recommend every book we discuss on this podcast to everyone. I think they're all great. We're trying to be tasteful here. But this book is just the book to read. I think it's so it's it's hard for me to overstate the value and beauty of this of this work. Um so I don't know, before we go on to end notes, um, Kyle, if you want to have the last word about this, um, I'd, I'd be happy to give it to you. Well, I, I don't know that I have um, a, a lot more to say than what I said at the beginning of the conversation, which is that I could I can't really recommend this um, more highly, especially to, to I mean, I think it's good at any age, but I think especially to younger um academics, intellectuals, people beginning something new, mm-hmm. um, that this is a really helpful manual mm-hmm. and a reflection on it's even a really helpful reflection just on moral theology about mode of reasoning about virtues and vices mm-hmm. um but the, the nuts and bolts the practical stuff mm-hmm. alone is worth the price of admission i mean um i think um i've often thought that if we could if we could start people off with this book then um you know you you would save a lot of grief and a lot of errors along the way yeah yeah all right. Well, uh, I guess we will move on to our final sequence then. Uh, we have a little segment at the end of every episode called In Notes, where we uh, talk about uh, a book that we recommend based on this book, uh, just something that might be related. So if you've read this and you want to read something else uh, like it, we here are our suggestions. Uh, so, Kyle, do you have one for us? I do. Well, it, it's it's not um, the entirety of a book, but part of a book. Um, and the book is called The Sociological uh, Imagination by this sociologist, 20th century sociologist named C. Wright Mills. Um, it's a fascinating book, um, but I'm not recommending the entirety of that. I'm recommending the uh, appendix. It's called On Intellectual Craftsmanship. And Mills writes in a way that's quite in some ways similar to the Sir Yonge book, um, the two younger scholars beginning to um, beginning the process of becoming sociologists. But the advice that he gives is, I think, applicable um, to more than just sociologists. He, he gives some really interesting methods about what he calls keeping a file. Um, and some of it is overlaps with what Sergi says, but it's, it's another really helpful kind of um, advice from an older scholar saying, Hey, you want to do this? Let me, let me show you mm-hmm. what the process of of uh, of building the intellectual life is, and especially like how, how to integrate the sources of things that um, get your attention, that make you wonder about something. Um, you know, he says if you come across 
a newspaper article or a magazine article or a thought occurs to you in the middle of the night, you need to put it in your file and you need to be constantly organizing and reorganizing it. So there's some really interesting stuff in here about that. Well, fantastic. I, uh, I think I will read that too, just to see how it compares with search launch, but it sounds great. Uh, Wesley, what about you? Yeah. So I feel like normally when we do this, we read a primary text and then we refer to secondary texts that may enlighten it, but I'm going to go back to a primary text, which is Thomas Aquinas's precepts for acquiring knowledge. He has 16 of them. And really uh, it, it, they were in a letter to, to, uh, uh, to another monk. Um, but I think, I think that if you actually read these and take these very seriously, you're just getting a distilled version of the intellectual life, or perhaps the intellectual life is just the extrapolation from these 16 precepts uh, by Thomas Aquinas. So it's really, really uh, good to read. I, I have a copy of it that I printed out and I leave it on the whiteboard in my office at my house. And in fact, sometimes when I'm feeling particularly pious, I use it as the foundation for like um, for self-examination um, when I am, like I said, when I'm feeling pious, which is not all the time. But <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, so that's what I would that's what I would point to is definitely uh, definitely find find that somewhere. You can find it online. It's real easy to, to access. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a I had a recommendation planned um, before this, but, uh, something Kyle said reminded me, uh, early on in the discussion of a different book that I think would be a better recommendation. Uh, and this is a book on writing actually that I think if I were going to maybe pair the intellectual life, um, with another book that I think, uh, graduate students should read as they want to go into, uh, to write better. Uh, and it's a book by Christopher Lash called plain style. Um, I just think in general, academic prose is very bad. Uh, and I think that there's actually, um, academic prose is trying to obscure a number of vices uh, uh, using this bad prose. And um, Lash is a really fantastic writer for a kind of clarity of thought um, and a willingness to be engaging while also thinking deeply. And so plain style is just this little manual that he, that he wrote to teach people how to write. And I think it's a, a great little companion. It's a great little book. I keep it in my office. I've got it. I've got it like right over here on the little shelf here uh, near my desk. It's again, it's great. All right. Well, with that, uh, we are going to wrap up. Uh, For those of you who are listening to us, I'd like to remind you that we have a YouTube channel also called The Classical Mind, where you can go and find uh, pretty much weekly or sometimes semi-weekly content um, all about the great books. And for those of you who are also watching us on YouTube, I would remind you that you could listen to us as a podcast and you can choose to support us for uh, five bucks a month if you go to theclassicalmind.com. Thank you. And we'll see you next month.